an Air France A340 is coming in to land at Toronto with less than favorable weather conditions. What caused this flight to completely overrun the runway? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. The cat closed his notes, so... She licked the screen and closed his notes. <laughs> I just... I don't even know how. <laughs> we have patrons to thank. Yeah, we have three new ones. We have three new patrons to thank. Good yes. gravy. So, thank you to our new patrons, Beverly, Gavin, and Michael. Yay! Yay! Thanks. Gavin, I think you've requested stuff before. I think Probably. so, too. Because your name sounds familiar. Anyways, thank you. Thank you. We appreciate, again, we've talked about this before, but if you need to leave the Patreon for any reason, please fill out the exit survey so we know why. If it's ever because you're not happy with the benefits you're getting, we want to know. We want to know so we can fix that problem for future patrons. Not uh, that we've had a lot of people leaving. No, a few people not- that have usually do it because of... Change in financial status. Which is one of the things you can put. And that's totally fine. Like, don't feel like... No, that's... I would do it. I've done it. I have too. So please don't feel like you need to... Stick around. For any reason. We just appreciate that you ever... I guess we. this is also the time to mention, for those of you who don't know, we do offer a 10% discount if you sign up for the annual membership. And there's a few people who've done that. Yeah, we actually have lately. Several. Actually, so you get basically a month's off, more than a month or something. It's 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 ten percent, ten percent. Yeah, it's like a month and a half or something like that of what it would be if you were month to month. So mm-hmm. all that information when you sign up for Patreon is available. If you have any questions about that, please let us know. Also, if you have anything you want included in your Patreon tier for whatever reason. We ran out of ideas. Yeah. So please <laughs> yeah. let us know. Like, we do send out merch. We do give you discounts. Please use your discounts on merch. <laughs> and then obviously all the extra content you get. But if for whatever reason you think of something that we haven't, don't have on there, or you, you've you noticed on other Patreons that they have that you think would be cool that we did, let us know, because like we said, we've run out of ideas. Yes, that. <laughs> so. We will talk a little bit about our thoughts on this whole Netflix documentary about Boeing. Yeah. The post episode. So if you're curious about that, be a patron, or if you're a patron, take a listen to the post episode for this. Yeah, because we, we actually watched it yesterday, and we have some opinions. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> not, Agreed. Not to say it wasn't a bad documentary, but we'll tell you more about it in the post episode. Yes. Anyway. Sorry for the long intro. I think that's all housekeeping. Excellent. So, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Air France Flight 358. Which was recommended by me. Thank you. Was there anybody yeah. else? Or was it just you? No, it's just me. Oh. <laughs> I'm actually surprised that nobody else recommended this one. This is a relatively well-known accident. I wanted to do it because it is a culmination of a lot of fire safety or at least I thought that's what I would be talking a lot about, and that's not what I'm talking a lot about. <laughs> so all of the things were like, this was a really good example of fire safety. I'm like, great, I will talk about it. It's like a paragraph out of a lot. A lot. So this is also your birthday accident. Oh. <laughs> During your conscionable memory, too. Like, yeah, because the last one wasn't. 
Right. When did it happen? This happened on August 2nd of 2005. Oh, okay. I was like nine. <laughs> like, <laughs> Thank <yeah>. you. <laughs> I yes. turned nine. Yes, you turned nine that day. And yes. Brendan and his brother turned 10. Yeah, Miranda and her brothers turned nine. Yes. They are all multiples. Refer to post episodes. Yep. This was an Airbus A340-300, the tail number Foxtrot-Golf-Lima-Zulu-Quebec, which an A340 we will never really talk about because this is really one of only two that I would think would be of note. The other ones, I wouldn't even consider those that important. I wouldn't do anything more than a mini-sode on pretty much any of the other incidents. So this is probably the only time we'll ever talk about the A340, and it's definitely the only time we'll talk about the A340-300. Can we talk about the A340? Yes, the A340 is nearly identical to the A330. Except. It is a wide body. It is a large Airbus, but and it's like a twin-aisle... Single level, so it's not like a double... It's not an A380. Yeah, it's not an A380. But it's got four engines instead of two, compared to the A330. So it's got four... It's a quad-engine airplane. So the three major quad-engine airplanes are the A380, the A340, and the 747. Yes. Yep. In the modern day, yeah. The the big planes. Yes. That carry a lot of people. Yep. Is the capacity of the A340 greater than that of the A330? There are versions of the A340 that are greater in capacity. But this one actually is nearly identical to the A330-300, so there's hardly any difference in terms of capacity. However, this airplane did have a greater range than the A330 did initially. They have okay. since extended versions of the A330. Isn't there an A330-neo now? Yep, there's an A330-neo that has a much better range. The A340 was known as the Long Ranger, so it was meant to be that globe-trotting, very long-range airplane until Boeing made the 777-LR. And it could go virtually anywhere from anywhere. That was kind of the whole idea. But it also has the A340-300 specifically, and then on to the 500 and 600. They have a center main landing gear as well. One. So they actually have three main landing gear versus two or four, like most wide bodies. So when they activate the landing gear later, you will you will hear four green, which when I was watching Air Disaster, I was like, what? Yep. It's usually three green. Yeah, yep. but it's a big enough airplane that it requires four gears. Yes. Even though we have bigger airplanes these days that still only need two, but that's because of the way they built them. So A340 was kind of this unique airplane in Airbus's world, and it actually sold pretty well. Specifically, the A340-300 was a pretty good airplane. Do you know when the A340 came out? The first flight was October 25th, 1991. I mean, the reason why I ask Mm -hmm. is we've already talked a little bit about Boeing, Mm -hmm. about like what their similar airplane would have been yeah and we just said we're going to be talking about this in the post episode but they are starting to get to the point where airbus is catching up to boeing yep in plane sales and in safety and all that stuff absolutely so that's why i'm asking is like when when did it actually come out and what's it comparable to right so this is yeah sort of comparable to to the triple triple seven yeah yes this fits somewhere between the seven six seven and the triple seven Okay. In terms of Boeing. If anyone was wondering, 380 of these have been built, and all but three of them have gone to airlines. Right. Some of them are government-run, government-owned. And they're actually pretty cool, the ones that are government-owned. But yeah, the A340-300 was a pretty well-selling version of the A340. There's still quite a few, actually, A340-300s out there. A handful of them are still flying, which is interesting to me. 
Uh, as of July of 2018, there are 96 in service. Yeah, now, which is... Granted, that was a while ago. Right. But, which is crazy to me. I mean, a lot of them got retired during the pandemic, but Lufthansa still flies them, which is crazy to me. I mean, they're not that old, but they are old. They're Like, the technology and the comparison and efficiency to a lot of other things just doesn't make much sense, but... Here's a more recent statistic. As of November 2021, there are 214 Airbus A340 aircraft in commercial service. They do not make the A340 anymore. So Air Atlanta Icelandic flies them? Hardly anybody knows that one. Air Madagascar. I'm surprised they do. Air X Charter. Azerbaijan Airlines. Asman Air. Conviasa. Yes, that's Venezuelan. Edelweiss. Yep. The Governments. Yes. <laughs> the government. High Fly Malta, Iran Aceman Airlines. I thought High Fly got rid of them all. Well, I guess they didn't because they flew they flew the A340 to the Antarctic during 2021. Cam Air in Afghanistan, Lufthansa. Yep. They're the most prominent in like the, you would actually see those in the United States. I see them in Denver all Ma- the time. Mahan Air, Malith Aero, Plus Ultra Lineas Adias. Really? Plus flies them? Interesting. South African, Swiss. Syrian. Swiss still has them? Well, they're 2021. They have five, I think, of the 300. Yeah. And they are set to be retired in 2025. Interesting. I'm amazed. They rely heavily on the 777. And then a lot of undisclosed ones. Yeah, that does not surprise me. Anyway, with that giant history lesson on the A340. I mean, we'll never talk about it again. We so. will Yeah, probably not. But, you know, after that, sorry, if you've gotten to this point, congratulations. The one thing you'll <laughs> learn about every every time we cover Air France is we always get to cover something really interesting. <laughs> something wrecked. Very unique. And in this case, it's the only, like, really bad accident of the A340. This was a flight from Paris's Charles de Gaulle Airport to Toronto Pearson International in Toronto, Canada. 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 It is not a short flight. No, it's about eight hours. Yeah, it's not terrible. The captain for this flight was Alain Rossai. He was 57 years old. He had 15,411 hours total. He was three years from retirement. Yep, in France. Retirement age has since gone up in most countries, but yeah, he was three years from retirement in France at the time. He had 1,788 hours on the A340. The first officer, on the other hand, was Frédéric No. He was 43 years old. He had 4,834 hours total, of which 2,502 hours were on the A340. So he actually had more time on the A340 than the captain, Hmm. but he had less than a third of the total hours of the captain. In Paris, the flight was loaded with 297 passengers and 12 crew. A very full airplane, might add. Here's the issue with that. Here's why 297 doesn't add up to me. It's because there's 291 passenger seats. Okay. I only know of three that aren't sitting in passenger seats, so I have to assume that the other handful are lap infants. Mm, That makes sense. Yeah. It doesn't list that. We'll talk about this. So this included a passenger in the jump seat in the cockpit. Yep. So someone... From the airline. Uh, Actually, no. Wait, This is weird. They were the son of a crew member, and they were allowed to fly in the jump seat per Air France's Yeah, I don't like that. No, 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 no. Me neither, but also this had nothing to do with anything, so. I realize that, but also. Regulations have changed. Yeah. (laughs) I feel like it's not great. Regulations have changed. That person would no longer be allowed in the jump seat. There's also two passengers... Two people just flying as passengers 
in the crew rest area of the A340. So where the cabin crew would go to rest. There are two in the crew rest area. That's weird. I have to assume they're off-duty crew members who are flying oh, for fun. Oh, with, yeah. And it becomes helpful later. Yes, it does. So that takes care of some of that 297. But like I said, this is a very full flight. I mean, 291 seats and they're all full, plus the 12 crew. The crew performed their pre-flight activities and agreed to take on an additional three metric tons of fuel to allow for an additional 23 minutes of flight time for possible weather delays while en route. The captain was to be the pilot flying while the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring for the first half of the flight. Mm-hmm. They would then swap roles for the second half of the flight. So, so when they landed? So the captain got to do the takeoff and the first officer would do the landing. Oh, okay. Yep. Well, that kind of makes sense, though, because yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it's a pretty long flight. Yeah. So it switching up, roles. Breaks after- up your, your responsibilities as pilot in command and it, it yep, it yeah. changes things. I think that makes perfect sense. Yep. This is pretty normal, even to this day. I mean, this is how they would do it. Because it's it's really good experience that way. The aircraft pushed back from the gate and taxied to runway 9 left, 09 left at Charles de Gaulle. The flight took off from 09 left at 1.53 p.m. local time. All the times in this report were in UTC, and that is just not fun. Especially when you're talking about a flight that crosses many time zones. The flight climbed to an initial cruising altitude of 35,000 feet, but was eventually changed to 36,000 feet for the rest of the flight by the air traffic controllers. So they crossed the ocean at 35,000 feet because that was their max allowable while crossing the Atlantic. Okay. But once they were back in air traffic control area off of the Atlantic, they were allowed to climb to 36,000. So I thought that when you go a certain way, mm-hmm. you are either odd or even. Yeah, how does yes. that work? Correct. Yes, but they can change some of those rules for sequencing. So... And for example, in this case, in this flight, which usually when you're crossing the Atlantic, almost everybody's going the same direction. Okay. If you're going against traffic, you're probably going to be the one who's forced to be at a different altitude. In this case, they would have been going with pretty much everybody else in the same direction as traffic, because usually everything departs morning or early afternoon from Europe, heads over to North America, and then everything going back to Europe goes overnight. So they leave at the night. Interesting. I never thought about that, but it makes sense. Yeah. So that they arrive in the morning. So pretty much everything. I mean, if you look at like flight radar at any given time, you can tell which direction they're going right (laughs) now. Right now, they would all be going back to your eastbound. Yeah. Yes. There's going to be only a handful of westbounds here and there. So in this case, though, they were also given a max altitude, a max operating altitude, 35,000 feet. And that is going to be the most efficient for this airplane. They are trying to conserve fuel in the advent of weather, what have you, any delays. So they're pretty much flying the highest they possibly can while flying over the Atlantic because of that. The A340 is most efficient when it's flying at a higher altitude where it can reduce power. I literally was just going to ask that. Yes. (laughs) This is common with all airplanes, but the A340 specifically was built to be more efficient than most airplanes. At higher altitudes. Right. With its four engines, what makes it different than... The A330, for example, is, yes, it has some extra fuel capacity, but actually, because it has the four engines, it doesn't have to run them as as hard yeah. to stay at cruise altitude versus the A330, so it's actually very efficient. About four and a half hours into the flight, the flight crew swapped duties, so they, they switched, swapped who was yeah. pilot flying. Now yeah, the yeah, first yeah. officer was pilot flying for the rest of the flight. 1.50 p.m. local time in Toronto. So a lot of time has actually passed, even though we're only like 
We're only talking about minutes after they took off in Paris, but we're talking about hours in actuality. Yeah. The flight informed Air France dispatched that they were estimating an arrival time into Toronto of 3.39 p.m. local time in Toronto. 2.49 p.m., the flight crew requested METAR, meteorological data basically, for their weather data for all of their alternate airports from the air traffic controller. Their alternates were Buffalo in New York, Ottawa in Canada, and Cleveland in Ohio. All the way to Cleveland? Mm-hmm. I guess it would depend on where they are in flight, right? Yes. Well, it turns out that Cleveland is actually not much further than Ottawa from Toronto, just in the other direction. Interesting. It was reported to them that there were thunderstorms approaching Buffalo at the time, but both Ottawa and Cleveland were clear. They proceeded toward Toronto, but decided that Ottawa would be their best alternate option. Buffalo is the closest airport to Toronto for their diversion. By a lot. By a lot. Yeah. But... Buffalo having thunderstorms and whatnot, they decided that Ottawa, because it's still in Canada, kind of makes the most sense. Yeah. It's en route to Toronto, plus it's not terribly far away still. They calculated that they would have 14 minutes of hold time at Toronto before they would need to divert, as they would require 7.3 tons of fuel to divert to Ottawa. So when they got to Toronto, they would only have 14 minutes to spare, basically, where they could decide that they need to go to Ottawa. Yeah. 3.03 p.m., the flight crew made initial contact with the Toronto Area Control Center. At that time, they asked the air traffic controller about the weather at Toronto. The air traffic controller told the flight crew that they would be kept informed about the changing weather at Toronto. 3.13 p.m., there was a discussion between the flight crew and the air traffic control about the changing weather at Toronto, with thunderstorms moving through the area. Two minutes later, the flight was instructed to reduce to minimum speed due to landing delays at Toronto. So, here we go. Sequencing problems. Sequencing problems, weather, so now they're having to start considering that fuel and diversion. The flight crew then requested vectors to avoid the weather in the area, which the air traffic controller provided to them. So, they just started guiding them around the weather. Yeah. 3.17 p.m., the flight requested the METAR data for Toronto, which informed them of the thunderstorms and heavy rain in the vicinity at the time. Two minutes later, the crew briefed on the wind shear procedure. They discussed that should they encounter any wind shear, they would perform a missed approach. Simple as that. I mean, that would be a good plan. This is pretty much the standard procedure. Anywhere? <laughs> yeah. You're going to encounter a little bit of wind shear. You don't like the situation. Go around. Go, go missed. around. Figure it out. Yep. 3.22 p.m., the air traffic controller advised the flight that traffic was starting to move into Toronto and to expect further clearance at 3.50 p.m. So... About a half an hour later, which was very close to their max holding time. That was going to eat up most of that 14 minutes they would have, if that was the case. The air traffic controller used the vectors that they were given to essentially put the flight into a hold by pointing the flight away from the airport on a heading of 040 degrees. The flight crew reminded the air traffic controller twice that they were headed away from the airport to keep them aware of their fuel status. At 3.28 p.m., the flight was cleared for the Simcoe 2, which is S-I-M-C-O-E, to arrival procedure into Toronto. So that's their sequencing. Basically, finally, they were told, okay, hop on the arrival. At that time, the aircraft had 9.3 tons of fuel remaining, and they were 137 nautical miles from the airport. So how close were they to running out of fuel? Not that close. Okay. Actually. So they had some time. But point is, is if they had arrived in Toronto even a little bit later, like if they were given these instructions probably even 10 minutes later, they would have had to divert. Okay. 
A minute later, the flight crew reviewed the company's policies and procedures for when to declare minimum fuel. Speaking of. Oh, so, so yeah. Basically, the air traffic control, they still have the right to say, hey, we're at we're minimum running fuel. Out, yeah, we're running out of fuel. We're going to our diversion. At 3.33 p.m., the ATIS, or Automated Terminal Information System, info for Toronto indicated that there was reduced visibility in thunderstorms and heavy rain at the airport with rapidly changing weather conditions. By the way, this is an aircraft where, so Miranda and I have flown with Brendan before, mm-hmm. and you have to tune into the radio to listen to the ATIS. Yes. This one prints out? Yes, it can print out the state. Well, you can, they can request it from dispatch. You can listen to it too, of course. Yes. Just like any airplane. But it printed out. But yes. From they, like a little receipt thing. Yep. They and now most airliners still have this today. You can actually request data from from dispatch and air traffic control and stuff at pretty much any given time, and they can send it to the airplane to print out, and it will. I don't know if I like that, and here's why: because we kind of covered this. I don't know if it was last week, mm-hmm. two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. I've been everything's blended. Everything's together. blended together. It's okay. But the problem with having to read something out. Yep. Is first of all, it takes time. Yes. And second of all, you have other duties you have to do at the same time. Right. So it's I, easier to miss. It's information. easier to miss some important sure. information when you have to read out an ATIS rather than just listening to it and via that, the radio. That can be the case, but you also have that information to refer to over and over and over again. That's true. I so, mean, so it's it's like a, a half one, half dozen the other, right? Right. So it's like. You have the information, so if you need a reference, and again, you have it, but if right. you're not listening to it, it sometimes it means you miss things. Right. So In a lot of cockpits, you can also get information digitally, like it's written out digitally on their computer screens, right? basically. So, But in any case, this is pretty inconsequential, but yeah, they, they receive this paper form. It also informed the crew that runway 24 left was the runway in use at the time for landing. Between 3.36 p.m. and 3.40 p.m., the crew briefed on the instrument landing system, or ILS, approach to runway 24 left, so they discussed how that was going to be performed. At 3.40 p.m., the flight requested updated weather information for Toronto. The air traffic controller informed the flight that aircraft were now able to land at Toronto, but they did not have any prediction of traffic flow, so they weren't sure like how quickly they would actually be sequenced onto the final approach. Right. The flight crew requested to be kept advised of any changes to weather conditions or delays. Around that time, other aircraft began informing the air traffic controller that they were heading to their alternate airports. So several other airplanes in the area had been there too long. Yeah, they were like, bye. Heading somewhere else. (laughs) We're running out of fuel. Yep. 3.47 p.m., the flight crew informed the lead cabin crew member. Also known as the purser. Yes, also known as the purser. That if they were to divert, then they would be going to Ottawa. 3.49 p.m., so two minutes later, the flight requested a deviation around weather in the approach path, and the air traffic controller provided them with vectors. 3.53 p.m., the crew completed the approach checklist. Shortly thereafter, flaps 2 was selected and the landing gear was lowered. The autopilot was then disengaged, followed by a speed brake retraction as they were descending through 4,000 feet. So they were using the speed brakes to literally just slow down. Slow down, in the sky. Yeah. Shortly after, flaps three, followed by flaps full, was selected. The aircraft established on the ILS, 16 nautical miles from the threshold of the runway at about 3,000 feet. At that time, the autopilot was then re-engaged to follow the ILS. Less work on the crew. Because mind you, at this point, they are in the clouds. Right. The glide slope was captured at about... 8.7 nautical miles from the threshold of the runway. So, okay. so the plane got the frequency. So, well, it had already gotten the frequency 16 nautical miles out. 
Okay. 8.7 nautical miles out, so it's now flying level, basically. Okay. And then that 8.7 nautical miles out is where they met that that line, that diagonal line that goes to the ground. Yeah. Basically, that slope. So that's where they met it, 8.7 nautical miles out, and that's the point where the airplane went into its, its descent, descent toward the runway, automatically. Two aircraft ahead of Air France 358 landed successfully, but reported to the air traffic controller that braking action was poor on the runway, which the air traffic controller subsequently passed on to Air France 358. At that time, there was lightning all around the airport. Uh-oh. The crew switched their auto braking from low to medium on the airplane, which it just literally applies the brakes once they've touched down at a certain point and in a certain manner. It's pretty complex, actually. There's a certain amount, like you can set it for a certain level so that it slows the airplane down. At a certain rate. Yeah. Especially since there's water on the runway. Yes. And then they reviewed the go-around procedure. Just in case. Yep. It's always good to have a go-around procedure. Exactly. Just in case. The reported winds at Toronto prior to the flight landing was 280 degrees at 15 knots, gusting to 20 knots. So not actually too terrible and a little off of the runway direction. A little bit of a crosswind. During their final approach... They could occasionally see the ground in the airport in visual meteorological conditions, or VMC, but they would again fly back into the clouds, which, by the way, were very dark when they were in them. I mean, it is thunderstorms. Yep, and included very heavy turbulence and heavy rain. Again, thunderstorms. Yes. The flight made visual contact with the runway about two to three nautical miles out, between an altitude of 1,000 and 1,500 feet. About half of the runway at that time was visible, and part, if not all, of the airport ramp was visible at times, too. So they could see the airport pretty well, but also see where there was rain well over the airport. As the aircraft was on short final, lightning was witnessed on both sides of the runway, as well as at the far end of the runway. The aircraft's weather radar showed heavy precipitation around the airport, especially on the far end of the runway and just over the threshold. It showed it indicated red on basically either end of the runway. That's not great. No. The aircraft's displays showed that they had a 70 to 90 degree crosswind at about 15 to 20 <gasps> knots. <gasps> so it's directly across the, the runway. <sighs> of about 15 to 20 knots just before the threshold. They had their windshield wipers set to slow, starting at about 4 nautical miles out, and they remained on for the remainder of the flight. The airplane remained on the glide slope and on the target speed of 140 knots as commanded by the autopilot. The first officer then disengaged the autopilot and the autothrottle as they were crossing through 323 feet above the ground. The first officer increased the throttle slightly as he felt the aircraft losing speed and sinking. As the aircraft crossed the threshold, they entered an area of heavy rain with numerous lightning strikes and the visual contact with the runway was very severely reduced at that point and happening very quickly. How close were they to the runway? They were over the threshold. They and they couldn't right see the, the runway? It happened that fast. Like that. They couldn't see it. Were the lights on? Mm-hmm. It's middle of the day. Uh, it doesn't matter if it's the middle of the day if there's a thunderstorm. No, it does not. To be fair. Because we, we talked about it a few weeks ago about lights being turned on properly, etc. Mm-hmm. Yes. That's why I'm asking. But also... Yes. In this case, that wouldn't have made a difference. Oh, great. <laughs> that, that makes me an anxiety potato. Okay. Yeah. How do you think they felt? They are also anxiety potatoes. Yes. <laughs> I'm I'm laughing, nervous laughing, by yep. the way. It's not funny. I'm, I'm, I just want to make that fully it, clear. The airplane touched down at 4.01 p.m. in 53 seconds. The spoilers activated and the crew applied brakes and thrust reversers. The airplane began slowing down, but not before the end of the runway came. Uh. The aircraft left the end of the runway at 80 knots 
at 4.02 p.m. in 19 seconds. It crossed a grassy area, an airport perimeter road, before striking the perimeter fence and sliding down a steep ravine where the airplane had a heavy impact and came to rest immediately next to a very busy highway during rush hour traffic. Oh, that's not great. Nope. The tower controller had witnessed three bright orange flashes in the area that he associated with the airplane leaving the runway. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't wrong. Yep. And immediately activated the airport's crash alarm for an on-airport crash, which immediately alerted the on and off airport emergency services so that they would come from both on the airport as well as the surrounding area. The cabin crew ordered an evacuation within seconds of the airplane coming to rest as a fire was seen from the area of the left wing outside of the windows, causing smoke to enter the cabin. Electrical power had been cut in the airplane, so there was no lights, nothing. That is why the glow-in-the-dark strips are actually a fantastic idea. Yes. Yeah. We flew, what was it, Frontier? Was it Frontier? Something. I had to be Frontier. Probably. To San Francisco. That yes. we noticed when the lights turned down, because yeah. we were coming home while it was dark outside. Yep. That there was glow-in-the-dark tape along the aisleways instead of lights. Yep. Which glow-in-the-dark tape will work even if electrical's cut off because it's right. tape. Yep. And it's fueled by the light in the cabin right. while the lights are on. So all they really have to do is replace that tape every time it gets dim. Yep. And then it's since, good to go. And since that glow-in-the-dark technology has become a lot better, it makes a lot more sense. I remember when they used to be like, oh, lighted pathways, and there still are. But, like, there's, like, emergency illumination. But that does not always work because electrical lines can be severed. And especially if an aircraft breaks up. Yes. The electrical gets severed. <laughs> yes. Or, say, a fire. Yeah. <clears throat> some doors were opened and some of the slides inflated, while others only partially inflated. That's not great. Yeah. Which ones didn't inflate all the way? I don't remember which one specifically. There's a whole map somewhere. It's really not terribly important. We'll talk about why. I mean, you can probably still go down the slide, right? Yes. Yeah, it's about a 15-foot jump. And people did it. Listen. And people jumped. Well, because here's the thing. Listen, if you're, like, it's if it's between me dying from smoke inhalation or burning to death it's... and jumping 15 feet, I'm jumping 15 feet. Well, because here's the thing, and you'll see this shortly, but... The airplane now is buried in the dirt, basically. It's not quite as far as it was before. Yeah, it's, it's closer <laughs> to the ground. It's much it closer to the ground now. In a panic, many people rushed for the open exits. Some passengers still grabbed their bags. And uh, them I will talk more about it later. I knew, <laughs> I knew I would get to make you mad. Every time. She'll like, talk more about that I will talk later. a lot more. Yep. I realize this was previous to some of the stuff we've talked about, but it's like, come on. Yep. Leave your d on the aircraft already. Yes. Are, do you want to burn to death? Great. Get the off the airplane. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Leave the behind. Miranda has opinions. I have a lot of bleeping to do. <laughs> I'm sorry after the fact. It's okay. But come on. I mean... We've talked about this numerous times. I mean, I feel like a broken record. Like, And, and I, I the realize... The sad part is, is this continues to happen. I know. That's the problem. Your can be replaced. Yep. Your life? Yep. Not so much. There are two... Th okay. Small rant. <laughs> there Small? are 
two things you can do as a passenger when you're in an airplane and an emergency situation happens. Those two things are, one, wear your seatbelt. Please. Please, God. And, we'll hear about this in future episodes. <laughs> and two, get off the airplane. That does not mean with your stuff. That just means get yourself off get the aircraft. The fire quickly began to engulf the cabin. The evacuating passengers and crew ran uphill away from the aircraft in the smoke, which and happened to be back up toward the runway. The first officer struggled out of his seat before heading back to the cabin, the passenger cabin, meeting with the lead cabin crew or the purser. In tandem, they worked their way as far back as they could in the cabin to search for any remaining passengers or crew to evacuate. However, there was a lot of smoke. Not finding any, they returned to the front just as the captain struggled out of his seat, which had detached from the floor Ugh. and had thrown the captain forward Ugh. toward the panel. Ow. He probably hit his head on the dashboard. More than likely. He attempted to search the cabin as well, but the smoke was becoming too thick at that time in the cabin for him to get that far at all. On top of that, he had a back injury. Oh, no, 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 no. Yep. And other severe injuries that were making it difficult for him to move. He exited the aircraft from the R1 door. <laughs> you need to get off. He like, did. I realize... You're the captain. I realize yes. you're the captain, and the whole captain goes down with the ship thing, you know? Yes. But and also, if you have a back injury, you shouldn't be moving. You're not helping anyone. One of the things that I thought was strange is in the air disasters, or the air crash investigations episode for this... They depicted it as though... He was, like, on the floor. He was on the floor, and the first officer was, like, helping him get up off the floor. It's not that I think the first officer necessarily didn't try to help him. But when you look at pictures of his seat... It's it's, it's not detached, that. but it's still in the upright position. It's forward toward the panel. The captain was conscious. He was well enough to be able to, like, talk to the first officer. He probably told the first officer, if you can get out... Get out. Go help and get out. And so that's what he did. So that was one of the things that was in the, like the air crash investigations episode that was like, I don't know that he actually like went to do anything with the captain in actuality, because in the report, they talk about them separately. They talk about the first officer got out of his seat, went back to try to help. And then they talked about the captain got out of the seat on his own and struggled back just about the same time the first officer came back to the cockpit. Basically. So here's the th coming from a previous lifeguard and me having to understand head, neck, and back injuries. Stop it. Like, stop moving. Don't Yeah, move. don't move. You, I, I realize he's also in a burning airplane and he needs to get out. In this case, he saved his own life. Which is, yes. I. There are certain situations where it's like, yeah, get the hell Could off move, the airplane. he got off. But you shouldn't touch anyone with a head, neck, or back injury. Because right. not only could you do more damage, but you could paralyze them. Right. And if they could move before, if you turn them a certain way, if you touch them a certain way, they could definitely end up getting fully paralyzed from yep. the neck down. So, I re like I said, I realized that if he can move and he needs to get out, he needs to get out. I wonder, I wonder how he got to emergency services. So, I don't know if you heard Nick say this, but all of the passengers are like climbing up this hill. The hill, yeah. It is yeah. torrentially raining. It is. Yeah. So, it's like mud. Mud. I mean, him just getting off the aircraft is probably, even if he had to crawl, I guess. We'll talk better. about how they might have been able to get to him okay. in but a second. At my, my whole point being, if you've ever come across this happening, do not touch them. Yes. Uh, unless you are a medical professional or you have a backboard or something to stabilize their neck and back yep. so that they don't. Like I said, in this case, get, off. get the off it doesn't matter right <laughs> it doesn't matter at that point but the the issue i have with the air disasters episode and i didn't watch it right so i don't sure. know but them saying that the first officer tried to help 
no. Yeah. <laughs> if you think they have a back injury, I mean, if the captain got out of his seat himself, that's a different story. Right. But if they pictured it as the first officer helping him out of his seat, no, 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 no. You shouldn't. If you can, you should leave them in the position they're in. And unless, you know, the entire aircraft's on fire and you could potentially die. Yep. So there you go. That's my two cents on that. Well, he helped himself out and he left the airplane on his own. Yeah. He exited the R1 door, forward right door. Yeah. So hopefully he got some help. So he had to have a lot of physical therapy. Yes, he did. That doesn't surprise me. And he did not fly for Air France ever again. No. That also doesn't surprise me. He was only three years from retirement, but it really sucks that this is how he had to retire. And I feel for that. That said, emergency services had arrived 52 seconds after the accident happened. Excellent. Excellent. That is like. That is amazing. We never get to talk about that, I feel like. But they were there so fast. Very few times where we can talk about they got there so fast. Yes. And this is what they found. Yeah, that's horrifying. We're looking at a a picture of the aircraft on fire, by the way. The lead cabin crew member exited the aircraft just before the first officer left via the forward left door, the L1 door, he being the last person off of the airplane. The aircraft quickly became fully engulfed in flames, with the entire passenger cabin burning and collapsing in. Literally the whole top of the airplane. Yeah, you can literally see in the picture we have on the website. Several pictures. Well, yes, there will be multiple. But the entire passenger cabin is just completely destroyed. It is gone. Passengers were rounded up and brought back to the airport or to local hospitals as necessary, where they were eventually united with families and friends. Amazingly, all 309 passengers and crew survived. Excellent. That is how it should be. Yes. Uh-huh. We'll still talk about the things that went wrong. I, I, <laughs> I feel like there's always things that go wrong, but at least everyone survived. Yes. Anytime you have to evacuate an airplane, you just have to assume that many things are going to go wrong. Unfortunately, because that is human. Injury. That is just human But nature. everyone's alive. Everyone's like, alive, which is amazing. Ten passengers and two crew, including the captain, were severely injured in the process. But that said, 297 of the passengers and crew were minorly injured or not injured at all. Which is incredible. That, yeah. I mean, you, when considering you look at- how bad the fire was, yeah, it's yeah, pretty, when- it's pretty in- interesting. Yeah. When you look look at the pictures, it is just, it's kind of mind-boggling that that's the case. Because this airplane is one of the most destroyed airplanes I've seen from an overrun ever. Yeah. It's it's amazing that it it caught fire. Yes. Well, I have to assume what happened. Because if you look at the picture, there are two very clearly missing engines. Yeah. (laughs) And that is because they are the inboard engines and they are very low to the ground. And the airplane... Did eventually, I mean, strike things very low to the ground. Correct. Including collapsing the gear. And therefore ripped the engines from underneath the airplane. And then the fuel and the stuff caught fire. Also, what's kind of hard to see in the photos is the surface at which they landed's not the right word. But the surface at which they ended up. They came to rest. Came to rest. There we go. That's a good word. Yep. Is about 50 feet lower in elevation than the runway. Ooh. They're in a gully. It's much steeper than it looks in the pictures. Uh, Another question. Mm -hmm. I know you said not to have hypotheticals. God. (laughs) This isn't hypothetically, really. It's more of a question on if the weather was so bad, why didn't they just divert? I will answer so many of these. Okay. is the ultimate question. Because right? I feel like us talk, even going through the history of flight and stuff, 
the weather seems so horrible that in my brain, I'm like, why didn't they just go to Ottawa? Well, planes were already clearly landing. Yes, but... So that's a fact. They were having issues seeing the runway toward the runway. Remember what time you just said that that happened? When they're already, like, on top of the runway. Well, I realize that. But that means that the rain would have to be going for a while before they even got there. I mean... Yes and no. We're talking about downpours, which we'll get there. Let me... Okay. Sorry. You saw how long my notes are. I know. I realize that. I realize we're probably... I always say we're probably going to get into it. Okay. Okay. We're going to take a break and Christy's going to get into it. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. And we're back. So Christy, please answer all of the questions. And I'm sorry in advance for the amount of questions that are going to come up and potential Miranda rage warning. There is a lot to unpack in this one. (sighs) This investigation was performed by the Canadian Transportation Safety Board, or the TSB. Or or the BST, whenever it's translated into French. On the air crash investigations episode, I don't know if it was real footage or like simulated footage, but their their jackets say TSB dash BST. That's annoying. I feel I feel for Canadians because some of you have to be fluent in both languages. Just wait till we go to Belgium. They say they feel sorry for <laughs> us who are monolinguistic. To be fair, I would I am trying very hard to be more than monolinguistic. Yes. It's hard. Okay. Anyway. anyway, can we go back to this? Back to the report. With the assistance of the BEA as country of manufacture and aircraft registration, the NTSB as country of engine manufacture, and the manufacturers themselves being Airbus and General Electric. Yep. Yep. Both black boxes were recovered from the accident and were able to be read out by the BEA despite the heat exposure. Huzzah! Huzzah! Of, Of the FDR, the only thing that they could read was the memory card, which was in, quote, pristine condition. Excellent. I mean, we covered things where airplanes. they didn't even have anything, so... so yay modern airplanes. For the sake of <clears throat> interesting narration, I'm not going to go through the analysis necessarily in the order it would have been done in reality, because A, I don't know what order that is, though I can guess, and B, it makes for a more cohesive and well-flowing narration, or at least I'm trying. Fair enough. We have discussed runway overruns before, and there are certain aspects that are very similar across runway overruns. Several runway overruns. Let's discuss mechanically what could have gone wrong and if it did. First off, our spoilers. These are devices on top of the wing that pop up automatically upon landing and act as a wall and provide lots of drag to help slow down. Or at least they will pop up if they are armed. Right. There have been a couple of incidents where that didn't happen. Investigators found the settings for the spoilers and found that they were indeed armed and did indeed deploy. Yep. Check. Yep. It helps push the airplane down. Push down force on the, the landing gear too forces the brakes to work. Yeah, it forces them to try to slow down. Yep. Speaking of, brakes, fairly obviously. These work similarly to brakes in your car. Yes. Th- they're brakes. Yes, relatively, that's, yes. That's how that works. There's a lot more of them, and it's a much longer, more complex system. Also, but... it's not just one pedal. You press forward with both feet. Yep, because you can do differential braking. On the rudder pedals? Yes. Yeah. You push on the toe ends. Oh, this is why I can't... <laughs> I can't fly because I can't even reach. I literally flew with Brendan one time and he's like, 
can you reach the rudder pedals? And I went, no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not it, if you want me to see over the windshield at the same time. Yeah, they're tow brakes, which allows you to do differential braking, which in large aircraft and even small aircraft is very useful. Allows you to brake on one side versus the other. Most planes nowadays are equipped with auto brakes. Yep. It automatically applies brakes. This was no exemption. Investigators found that the auto brakes did work properly through the entire landing and provided their maximum emergency braking capacity, which is in part due to the pedals also. So yep. both got used. However. Oh, God. Investigators examined the runway and found the brake marks indicating that they were indeed used. But it was where that was concerned. Yeah, farther down the runway than should have been. This was a point where investigators determined that the aircraft had landed 4,000 feet down the 9,000-foot runway. Ooh, that's pretty far down there. Yep. More <laughs> specifically, 30... That's pretty dramatic, but that's okay. pretty far down. It's pretty dramatic, yeah. so... More specifically, 3,800 feet, but that's still... I mean, it's almost 4,000 feet down a 9,000-foot-long runway. And you're talking about a four-engine aircraft, too. It takes a long a heavy time bird. to get that thing to stop. Yes, I and it's heavy... raining, and, and so let's let's keep going. I'll get more into the halfway down the runway thing later. Now, thrust reversers. We've talked about these before. These are devices that deploy from the engine in one way or another that redirect air to assist in slowing down the aircraft. This isn't buckets, right? No, I couldn't figure out what they are. They're not. They're that. <laughs> They're the ones that open up on the engine, not the buckets that. But they don't. These but don't. These don't slide, slide. bad. These are sort of clamshell. They're, Dude, go look at the pictures. They're Airbus's version of a clamshell. They okay. did this on a lot of Airbus aircraft. It's strange. I'm not going to try to explain it because a picture's worth a thousand words. So go have fun with They're that. They're just deflectors. Sure. When the engines were found, the thrust reverses were deployed. Great. Move on, right? No. No. Nope. Upon reviewing the flight data recorder, investigators found that the time between landing and thrust reverser deployment was a full 12 seconds. That's not great. Especially when you're already halfway down the runway. Yeah, and you should be just put it, especially Listen. with the runway being so wet and stuff. So, when interviewed, the crew provided some explanation. The first officer was a pilot flying at the time, and upon landing, he was dealing with a hell of a crosswind. I'll mm -hmm. get more to that later. One hand was on the control column, his right hand, and the other was on the throttle, as is normal. Yeah. And he was using the throttle as kind of leverage in maintaining control of the aircraft, because he's getting shooken left and right. Yeah. And he's trying to control the control column. Yeah. So he's basically using it to hold himself steady. Is this a yoke or this a is side a stick. stick? A side stick. Okay. Typical Airbus. So he can't have both hands on it. Right, right, right. But... The reason why I ask is because usually, and I, I know this is the case with most Airbus aircraft, but I mm -hmm. always ask just in case. Yes. Because there are most, it is true. There are some that are not. Yeah, because most Boeing aircraft have a yoke. Yep. Most Airbus aircraft have a side stick. Yep. And it's how literally you like control it. Yeah. How you control it is is depending on which one it is. Because yep. for a yoke, you really should use both hands. For a side stick, you could use one hand, which is why I'm asking. You you are absolutely correct. However, having his hand on the throttle prevented the captain from activating the thrust reversers. How so? His hand and you also it Oh, he's literally holding the thing. But you also might ask why the first officer couldn't just do it himself. He was probably more worried about getting the airplane on the ground than... So the A340 has a different kind of thrust reverser activation method. Sort of. So most aircraft, I say tentatively as I'm not a pilot and I've not flown most aircraft, <laughs> but many aircraft, you have the throttles and you pull them back to idle and then you pull it back further 
to activate thrust reversers. Mm -hmm. Miranda's seen it. Yes. Go watch Air Disaster sometime. It's great. You'll see it. That is not how these work. The thrust reversers are activated by pulling back the separate levers on the throttle that reside in front of the throttle and have to be pulled in a rotation up and over the throttle levers. You can't do that if your hand's on the throttle. Yeah, that I... mm. This is very common, actually. I don't know if I this like is, that. This though. is common and all well, it's a safety measure. And actually it's very smart. Oh, it's so that they don't accidentally deploy thrust reversers. Correct. I guess I understand that. This is essentially the big giant safety measure that they have to take in order to actually use the thrust reversers. Did this happen after Lauda Flight 4? Yes. Okay. That's probably why then. So in this case, though, I mean, this is pretty common even on most airliners today. Most airliners use this form of thrust reverser where you have a separate set of levers that you also have to pull up. You pull them up vertical, and this allows the thrust reverser to deploy. Most smaller airplanes, we're talking even a lot of regional jets and then turboprops. Turboprops, they usually have the, the pull all the way back for... Thrust reverse. That's the only kind I've ever seen before. This was my first time seeing this method of thrust reverser mm-hmm. activation. But it also makes sense why the captain couldn't just like push his hand back to activate thrust reversers. No, he like his you hand have to way. physically do it from the throttle. Right on newer versions of Airbuses, like the A320 and such, especially in the newer versions, they actually have an even nicer feature than that. It's like a hybrid of that. They have. So where you normally have the throttle, they then have fingertip levers, basically, that do the same thing, where you have to reach over with your fingertips, pull up on those, and then you can pull back the throttle into the reverse range. Okay. Well, so there's my explanation for that. Furthermore, the aircraft was not lined up with the center line, you know, crosswind, and that was taking so much of the first officer's attention, plus Air France procedure says that reverse thrust is not to be used in full if the aircraft is not lined up with the center line in crosswind conditions. Right. And it took them some time to get to the center line, which I get. It didn't get to full until 16 point something seconds yeah. after they touched down. So there's a lot of things working against the crew right now. Yep. Not great. What are some of the factors that might be out of the pilot's hands when discussing runway overruns? Let me count the ways. <laughs> runway conditions. Two flights landed before flight 358 and reported poor braking condition. And this was reported to the crew. Check. Runway grooving. Listen. We've talked about it before. Runways are grooved to allow for water runoff and to help prevent hydroplaning. Runway 24 left was not grooved. Correct. However, at the time, the entire country of Canada only had four grooved runways. Not the airport, not the city. The entire country. There's a reason. Grooving is great for rainy and wet conditions, but it makes snowy and icy conditions worse. Yeah, it does. And we're talking about Canada. Canada. Yeah. (laughs) You're not wrong. I mean, think about Canada being up north there. It is very snowy and cold up there, more so than here in Denver. And we get quite a bit of snow every year, depending on the year, I guess. But they have it like... Literally October through June. So it makes sense that they're more prepared for snow and ice rather than a rain. Rain, yeah. So I was going to ask if it was grooved, but I figured you'd get into it later. So wind direction. Here's where it's a little uh, tricky, sticky. Pick an adjective. Yep. (laughs) There were two wind recording locations at Toronto, which makes sense given how far apart the runways are. The Southfield Wind and Digital Altimeter Display System. Or WADS, WADS, I don't know how that's pronounced. 
which is located midfield of runway 24 left, was struck by lightning oh. eight minutes before flight 358 landed. Oh. So the only wind information the tower had for that runway was the information displayed before it went dark, as well as the lighted windsock on that section of the airfield. Huh. They also had one other piece of information. The, you might remember the report that I gave. That was given by the airplane before this one. Yeah, the one yep. of the pilot. Yep. The airplanes, the other. What's it called? The, the pilot. Pyrep. Pyrep. Yes. They actually had onboard data for a lot of these airplanes do. They have their own basically data in regards to winds. Which I found out has like an accuracy of plus or minus six knots, which isn't fantastic. No, it's not good. But it's also not supposed to be relied upon because Correct. it doesn't tell you data ahead of the aircraft. It only tells you what you're currently flying through. So there's not a lot of quantitative data for the time of landing that could well, have been provided to the crew. That's not great. No, it's not good. This windsock information, however, was relayed to the accident flight crew, but investigators found that though the wind information was valid for the two preceding flights, it did not ring true for the accident flight. Hmm. Investigators examined the radar information from the time around the accident flight and found that a rather severe band of rain and downdrafts affected the airport area right when Flight 358 was landing. Well, that's not great. There are actually pictures of the weather change from a bystander. A picture two minutes before landing, on short final, and just after landing, all spanning about six minutes. The change is insane. There are pictures on our website. Two minutes before, That's during good. landing, two minutes after. I mean, it's not great. It's, it's quick. It's bad. Like, you can see some distance. They can't see much. It's gone. You know what this reminds me of, though, is Colorado weather. This happens yes. here all the time. It we are very used to this. All the time. It literally happened. There on a bike ride. Yeah, we literally yeah. went. Short story. That is relevant. We went, the three of us, went on a bike ride before they moved last year. So we went on a bike ride. We got halfway through part of the park. And then we look over the lake and you just see this the wall, wall of hail. As Nick gets a flat tire. Literally, yep. he gets a flat tire. We look across the lake and it's coming toward us. We were also really close to a shelter, though. So, And there were people that were nice enough to let us use the shelter, even though they had it booked. Preserved, yeah. So mm -hmm. they were very nice. And they were like, do you want some food? And we were like, it's okay. We don't need any food. But thank you so much. <laughs> I am here to burn calories, not eat calories. <laughs> <laughs> so we ended up getting under the shelter, but literally within- 30 seconds. 30 seconds. It went from being able to see across sunshine to barely to nothing. Hail. This is an actual meteorological downpour. Yes. And that is what happened to them. It is. So you try landing. A hundred percent understand what they're going through since it happens here when it rains here all the time, all the time. Yes. Now the tower has radar. Couldn't they have seen that severe weather band coming? No. They nope. did not have a specialized weather radar. Wait, doesn't the plane? Yes, but it's coming from behind them. Oh, well, that's not helpful. Nope. So no one at this point knows what the exact wind condition was. Well, what was it, 2020 hindsight? The FDR reflected a tailwind component of 12 knots and a crosswind component of 19 knots at the time of touchdown. Again, not great. Um, actually really bad. Not great, terrible, and inaccurate. Correct. The margin of error on these systems is terrible. I would not rely on it. I would rely on it maybe for direction. Sure, maybe. Not magnitude, which is what a vector is, which is all that wind is. Thank you for coming to my 
math basis. Short tit talk, yeah. The METAR issued two minutes before landing, which the crew didn't get since they were past that point in their checklist, was winds at 290 degrees at 11 knots, visibility 4SM, statute miles, in heavy rain and thunderstorms, broken towering cumulus cloud layer at 5,100 feet above ground level, broken cloud layer at 14,000 feet of ground level, temperature 23 degrees Celsius, dew point 22 degrees Celsius, altimeter, blah, 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 blah. Cloud to cloud lightning visible in the southwest and northwest. Okay, you get the idea. Yep. So, I mean, 11 knots is all right. Is right. It's well within the tolerance of the airplane. Absolutely. There was a special weather observation, or speci, or specky, I don't know how that's pronounced, that was released two minutes after the accident, you know, given that there was an accident. Yes. And it was a little more reflective of the accident conditions. You ready for this? Winds at 340 degrees at 24 knots, gusting 33 knots. Oh, Significantly different. Ugh. Because this is also very off of the runway heading. Visibility one and a quarter statute miles in heavy rain and thunderstorms, scattered clouds at 1,500 feet, overclassed cloud layer at 4,500 feet with towering cumulus clouds and cumulonimbus clouds. That's new. Anyway, to put in relevant terms, they had about a six knot tailwind and a 32 and a half knot crosswind. Ew. And the A340 has a crosswind limitation of 33 knots on a dry runway. Hmm. So in other words, this was outside of the airplane's capabilities. Yeah, I would say so. And no one knew that that was going to happen. Having a tailwind and a strong crosswind are both the reason why the crew touched down so late. The first officer was having to put in so many actions into the joystick to counteract both of these that he kept putting the nose up in such a configuration that they floated. Yep. How? That on top of It's me. like what we were watching yesterday with that Cessna. <laughs> yeah. That literally couldn't land every yep. time he tried. In the super strong crosswind. Yep. Yeah. Same idea. And he, the first officer also had put in extra power as they were crossing over the threshold when he disconnected the autopilot. Yep. Investigators found that it was Air France practice to disconnect the auto thrust during approach, which is very different from what Airbus says you should do and what every other operator was doing. Sure. A lot of airlines and a lot of aircraft, they do disconnect just before so that they have manual power. But in this airplane, because it's advanced enough, it doesn't really need it. Investigators don't blame the pilots since it was airline practice, but they did say that having auto thrust on may have helped alleviate some workload from the pilot flying. Yes. Now, going back to that crazy crosswind, this brought me to the question of why did ATC even instruct them to use this runway? It's the shortest runway at Toronto. Yeah, with a four-engine aircraft, I find it hard to believe they'd make them use the shortest runway. This runway is normally well within the limitations of this airplane. Normally. It is 9,000 feet. Yeah, but it's pouring rain outside. Mm -hmm. Still well within the limitations, technically. So there's an explanation halfway. At 2.56, about an hour before the crash, the ILS for runway 24 right was struck by lightning. Well, And was unserviceable. Crews refused to land on runway 23 because the approach flew directly through the storm. So that left them with runway 24 left. Now, that being said, the ILS for 24 right was checked as serviceable at 3.44, like 15-ish minutes. Beforehand? Uh Uh-huh. But there's no evidence that anyone told the tower. So there's that. It is longer than runway 24 left, if anyone was wondering. There are two other runways that run perpendicular, sort of, and I have no idea why they didn't use them. There's no explanation anywhere. 
And given the crosswind, it might have been the better idea. You would have thought. My guess is no instrument approaches. Maybe it had to do something with the way that traffic was flowing so that they would also the reported wind when traffic that they gave them, which I didn't hear earlier, was two eight zero degrees. Yeah. Which the runway is two four zero. So it makes sense. It's not super amazing. It's not a 32 knot crosswind like what they thought was going to or what they found out was going to happen. Moving on to the next section of the analysis, which I get the honor of keeping very brief, unlike the last many episodes. This did not occur during a window of circadian low, which was specifically mentioned in the report, and there's no evidence showing that the crew was fatigued. Well, I feel like they were pretty alert. It seemed like they were. I mean, they were able to land the aircraft. It's just they landed it too late to be able to stop in time before they ran off the end of the runway. On that subject, now is for a big question that has plagued me this whole time and was not really addressed in the air crash investigations episode. Why didn't they go around? That, I was going to mention that, but my other problem with going around at this point is the wind, the crosswind is so bad. That is. That's usually when you go around. Yeah, that that was part of their procedure, though, was they discussed wind shear events. I guess that's true. I'm just, I'm confused why they even decided to land to begin with, but. Let's so, talk about that. When interviewed, the crew said that they believed the option to go around no longer existed because all they saw ahead of them was that band moving in front of them. All the, they saw was the, rain. the darkest of dark clouds they've ever seen and a ton of lightning. I mean, it would make sense if they thought it wasn't safe to go around. I guess it would be it, I would understand their thought process. Correct. Given how crazy convective weather like this can act, and given the already very strong presence of low-level wind shear, executing a low-energy go-around, which is what you would have, in such conditions is very dangerous. But also so is continuing the landing. So where do you draw the line? As it turns out, Air France's training didn't really address where to draw that line. It didn't address the hazards of regarding going around in convective weather, though they did have training for convective weather at cruise level. I feel like it's very uh, uh, particular circumstance. You don't hit this kind of weather landing every day. In fact, you maybe hit it a couple times a year, if that. So but it still happens. It happens, but do you need to train on it specifically all the time? I mean, you should, maybe. And this wasn't just limited to Air France either. Many airlines lacked this particular nuance of training. Well, and maybe they didn't realize it was a training they needed to have until something happened. And so many things did happen. We talked about all the microburst crap on landing. This is Well, they had stuff for microburst. This is a, a, a particular situation where they had to make a call based on... Is the weather ahead of us going to be worse and cause more problems if we go around than if we land? And you haven't really talked about that before. I have like 10 seconds to make that decision. And I have one more theory about how that pressure might exist on them. Okay. Do you talk about fuel? No. There was also the fuel. Going around takes a lot of fuel. It It takes a lot of fuel. They were already now past the point of being able to divert to Ottawa. They were past that fuel burn. So... The situation was, if they went around, they Would still they have, have enough to, fuel. Well, they, they still, still have, have to, to land, land at Toronto. Toronto. Yeah. They have no choice. They have to turn around and land at Toronto again. There so was there's no other choice. The, the external... And is the weather, is it going to be worse the second time? Right. You don't know. The external pressure, quote unquote, on them is the fact that 
they have to land at Toronto one way or another now. Well, and it's and it's of I, a, do, like, is it now or never? Well, and it's an internal pressure, I, I would say, because it's like you want to make sure that everyone's going to be safe upon landing. Right. That's the whole point of right. being able to land safely at an airport. Right. If we go around and we come back around, are we going to be able to stop in time for everyone to be safe? The crew did a good job preparing for landing in the bad weather and had actually discussed wind shear recovery procedure, as well as what their plan was if they had to do a go-around. They had planned to fly between the two cells ahead of them, indicating that at that point in the approach, they believed that a go-around was still a viable option. In doing all of this advanced planning, knowing that the weather was bad, the crew demonstrated Effective Crew Resource Management, or CRM. Cues received early in the approach were no were not compelling enough to abandon the approach, and the crew couldn't have anticipated and responded to the threats that occurred so late in the approach, and investigators do not attribute that to inadequate interaction or communication in the cockpit. There is one more factor that goes into not calling for a go-around. It makes sense that either crew member should be able to call for one, as we've discussed before, yes. but. but it also makes sense that the pilot flying is in a good... Oh, uh, arguably better position to make that call, especially. Right. At Air France, that decision is made by the captain regardless of who the pilot flying is, though the first officer may suggest that's bullshit. approach. I'm sorry. That's bullshit. It probably And it probably went away. changed. It did. <sighs> because <laughs> I the, can tell you it did. The whole point of crew resource management is that both pilots have the same amount of say. I realize the captain usually usually is the right. keyword there, has more experience. It doesn't matter. If the first officer thinks that there's a dangerous situation and they need to go around, there should not be any suggestion. It should be, we're going around, I'm taking over the aircraft. Correct. So, And we've talked about that multiple times before. Numerous times. Yes. And Welcome back to the CRM podcast. Yes. <laughs> yeah. There is a breakdown in CRM that happened at the very last second. Do you talk about that? No. Okay. So their CRM, I agree. Their CRM was actually really good. Okay, so I think I know what you're really talking good. about. They didn't specifically call for thrust reversers. The callouts weren't made by the captain at all when they were supposed to be. He was the pilot monitoring, and at this point, I think he was so spooked by the whole situation, he didn't. He didn't make any of the callouts. He's supposed to call when the spoilers deploy. He's supposed to call when the brakes are applied. And he's supposed to call when the thrust reverses are deployed. And he didn't do any of that. He's also supposed to call when they go below 70 knots. But that happened after they crossed the runway. So that, that. (laughs) You can drop that one. (laughs) So investigators did talk about that briefly. I kind of skimmed over it because I still got a chunk to, I got a good chunk to go. So let's continue. There are several mechanisms in place at various airports to assist with safety during runway overruns. We all know they're going to happen no matter what we do. So let's do things in advance, proactively. Mm -hmm. The first is called a runway end safety area or RISA, which is basically a strip at the end of the runway that is not included in the runway length and acts as a buffer or additional runway on landing should you need it. Right. This can be grass. This can be. It just can't have any obstructions. Empty area. Yes. According to Canadian regulations since 1993, it should be at least 60 meters. According to ICAO standards, it should be 150 meters. You need enough space that if they overrun with a certain speed, a big aircraft can stop in time. 60 meters, I feel like, is not enough. Canadian regulations recommend the 150 meters, but only require the 60. 
The ICAO recommends at least 300 meters, and the FA is like that. We're, that's our standard right there. 300 meters. There is a graph on the website that shows what was in place versus all of the recommendations and standards. There was 30 meters of asphalt past the threshold and 30 meters of grass beyond that, fulfilling the Canadian standard of 60 meters. The grass almost fulfills the ICAO standard of 150 meters, except that part of the standard is the downward slope can't exceed 5% pitch. That didn't happen. Then there's a road 155.7 meters past the end of the runway. So that's like... Not great. A little sketch, but fulfills it. But we also all know that there are definitely airports that can't have runway and safety areas that long. Birmingham. Midway. Telluride. Congonias. Like, the list goes on. Mm -hmm. Thank you for listing some of the ones I definitely had written down. <laughs> so what did those airports do? Some of them have a system we have talked about before. EMAS. EMAS, or Engineering Material Arresting System. It's a kind of honeycomb or grid system underneath seemingly normal asphalt or concrete that will collapse. It, it literally absorbs the aircraft. And it, yep. the landing gear just sinks in and then, like, is... I imagine whiplash is involved. From it has to be. But I mean, it's a pretty hefty stop. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. There are videos on the internet of it. Um, the... Air Crash Investigations episode actually had one of the FAA's test flights going through EMAS. Yeah, they so, depicted the 727 going through EMAS. It's not comfortable, but a no, crash is... But it stopped but it, the airplane. It does one of my favorite phrases, which is it collects the airplane and keeps it from going anywhere. I mean, it does. It literally grabs it by the hand and says, you're going to stop here. <laughs> you're not going anywhere. Oh, good God. Investigators did spend a chunk of time discussing one anomaly of the crash that didn't cause it or make it less survivable, you know, since everyone survived. But I think it's interesting, and it wasn't brought up on the air crash investigations episode. During the accident sequence, after overrunning the runway, one of the emergency exit doors opened. Yep. The L2 door specifically? Yep. Investigators determined that it was unlikely it happened from the outside since the handle is a recess. Inside, yeah. There were many, many hypotheses regarding how it might have happened from the inside, but none could be proven, you know, since, uh... There's no way The best know. thing I can guess is something bumped it. All that was proven was that the inside door handle had to be raised for the door to open, but they have no idea how this might happen. It is likely that the opening resulted from the deformation of the door frame itself by that, impact forces. Oh, that could that also happen. That was my other theory, which is that it just deformed. Having it open allowed smoke to enter the cabin, more so than it would have normally. Mm -hmm. That being said, no one tried to close the door because they left from it. They yep. were like, bye. They opened it and left. <laughs> they were like, it's open already. We're going to go now. Bye. Now for why I wanted to do this episode. The evacuation. Namely, everyone lived. Huzzah. Huzzah. Anyway, Woo. sorry, I had, a, we have a fancy new mixer. We do. Everyone evacuated due to successful training and actions of the whole cabin crew. They were exemplary and professional. This is mostly quotes, but like paraphrased. There was a effective communication between the flight deck and the cabin crew. The cabin crew was advised of the possibility of a go-round and were in a heightened state of awareness during landing and responded immediately to the emergency. It also helped that there were three supplemental cabin crew members, specifically two being in command of the passenger evacuation and the third helping open and evacuate the R4 slide. 
Everyone evacuated in 90 seconds. That's the whole thing. That is the standard. to be able to. Which we have discussed. It is the optimal evacuation time for a fire as anything past that and cabin materials start burning and the fumes become toxic and you ain't getting out of there. But it wasn't perfect. Nothing's perfect. One thing Nick mentioned while we were watching the air crash investigation episode is that the rain probably helped douse the fire. And that is not true. I was going to say because of the downpour, but it depends on the kind of fire because sometimes water doesn't help it. True. The, the rain made the firefighting foam diluted. Yep. Oh, that doesn't help. So that sucks. The one thing Nick and I talked about afterwards was that, yeah, it probably helped not get uh, passengers to light on fire if they were doused in fuel. Yeah. I mean, if you exited into a puddle of jet fuel, you weren't instantly caught on fire. As for the cabin itself before the emergency... Investigators said that there's a risk on long flights that passengers may not recall critical safety information from the pre-departure safety briefing, you know, since it was like eight hours ago. Okay, yeah, sure. But they had their safety information cards to look at, right? Post-accident interview showed that only one-third of the passengers read the safety information cards. <laughs> We've done this before. Do we have to say it again? Let me, let me keep going. Hold on. That's, I guess, the third thing you can do as a passenger. Yes, please. Okay, say it. Read your damn safety information card. Okay. It is particularly important, as this was the only means by which passengers are told to not bring their carry-on luggage in the event of emergency. What do you know? At this point, the safety briefing did not include that instruction. I feel like it's f***ing common sense. I'm sorry. The plane is on fire. Get the f*** out why are you being like oh let me get my overhead baggage from the bin first my next sentence was get ready for the rage but there's the rage here's some more rage 50 percent of the passengers retrieve their carry-on luggage are you freaking kidding me you're joking no what half when did this happen 2005 are you freaking (laughs) listen We're better than this. I can laugh because nobody died in this case. We're better than this, guys. Stop getting your baggage. If there is one thing that could have killed these people that survived the incident. It's the baggage. It could have been that. If you need an example, go look at the Sukhoi Superjet crash. Yep. Literally, you can hurt yourself or someone else yeeting your luggage down the slide, okay? Not a great idea. You can also jam up exits. You can also keep people from getting out of the smoke in time. Can I keep reading? Yep. (laughs) This is a problem because it's hard enough to walk down the aisle when you're boarding with carry-ons. Does anyone else have that same problem I do? Yes. Where I'm like running into everyone's chairs on the way to the back of the plane where I always end up sitting? Oh, everybody has that problem. A lot of people just don't care. It's even worse (laughs) when there's pushing, shoving, screaming, tripping, and trampling, etc. And you have to get out, most likely using a relatively small door, and go down a slide with the damn thing. Just, just leave it. Sing it to the tune of Michael Jackson's Beat It if you have to. Just leave it. The... Fortunate thing in this case is that the doors are large on the A340, and everybody was able to take them through the door without issue. One, there, so, forgive me for this next couple minutes, but one of the passengers that was interviewed on the air crash investigation episode was definitely 100% a Karen. God damn it. And she was complaining, rudely, 
about this guy. Now, granted, he did take his luggage and he, yes. and she was like, he was a bigger guy and he was struggling to get out. And so I had to get out after him and only use like half of the slide. I'm like, I get it. I'm sorry. Like, I would take you more seriously if you didn't sound the way you do. You, She complained about everything. Later, when they were talking about how passengers were getting reunited with their family, she was like, it was so disorganized. Like, the first disaster was the crash, and the second disaster was everything afterward. I'm like, listen, you think people are prepared for that kind of stuff? And actually, it wasn't that bad. Everybody survived, for one. And two, the emergency services were there in 52 seconds, which is unheard of. In big incidents like this. Some of the passengers weren't reunited with their family till like 11 p.m. Did you get off the fiery aircraft? Did you die? Shut up. Does it matter? Most of them weren't even injured. I know that's like really insensitive of me in some ways, but. No, I agree with you because here's the deal. You, first of all, survived being in an aircraft accident, including a fire, which, by the way, doesn't happen 99% of the time someone dies. One person at least. Right. So not only that, but you clearly don't have injuries to the point where you have to go to the hospital and you're complaining about how organized it was for people to get to their family members. What do you need? An Why do you care? An evacuation on a silver platter. You are alive. Sorry, but no. You're alive and you can see your family members again. Do you know the amount of people that cannot see their family members again because they died because of an accident similar to this? Are you kidding me? How entitled do you have to be? Yep. I'm sorry. That's just not okay. It's just not. You don't get to complain. Did you get off the aircraft? Were you injured? Were you able to get to the airport and be able to be safe? That should be the things that are front of your mind, not, oh, but the evacuation was like, like the person in front of me like was having issues and like I couldn't get to like where everyone was like who gives a shit? you're alive. Shut up. Yep. I'm sorry. But after covering so many of these accidents where so many people died because people were taking luggage off the aircraft, or the crew wasn't prepared enough, or people were literally bum-rushing exits because they couldn't get out. I'm sorry, you don't get to complain. It's true. She also had a Karen haircut. Anyway. <laughs> Shocker! I'm so shocked. Shut up, Karen. <laughs> Metaphorical Karen, not actual Karen. I don't remember her actual name. Oh. I didn't even take note of it. That's okay. Sorry if your name's Karen. I feel like I would have noticed if it was. But anyway. Yeah. Uh, that's all I got. Okay. So I wanted to talk about this too. The runway and safety area. By the way, in Toronto, this runway has not changed. That's an issue. And here's why that's an issue. Before this aircraft ran off the runway and into that ravine. This is not the first time it's happened. There was another aircraft. In 1978. That also ran off the same runway into and, the same ravine. Oh. And it was Air Canada. Sorry, Air Canada. <laughs> yes. It was Air Canada. And this ravine was brought up then as being a problem. It was said that they should fill in this ravine and create a longer runway and safety area for this runway. It is, to this day, still exactly the same as it was for both accidents. Yeah, Christy's pulling up the Google Earth. Mm -hmm. Can confirm nothing's changed. Yep. 
It's just not safe. So this is one of those things that's like, okay, it hasn't happened again since then, but... It could. It could. And it's not safe. Obviously, since two airplanes have done this. If you're going to have a runway that's like that, that close to the ravine, you should groove the runway. I would agree, or at least add EMAS, which they still have also not done. Yeah, that's the big thing. I would add EMAS. And they have the space they have plenty to do of it. space to do it, yeah. Like, yep. there's this... They almost... Like, let me put my words together. On Google Maps, if you pull up the satellite imagery, you can almost see, like, a square where they could just put it. You can yes. see it in the image we have on the website of it. Yes. I mean, it's the same. You can just put it there. Yes, There's exactly. no reason not to. So that was one of the things that just really bothered me. It's like, okay... Why didn't we fix this? It's obviously an issue since two airplanes have been there. I have to do this kind of an odd way because this document was apparently locked. So unless I have the password, I cannot highlight the ones that I want to use. So instead, I had to note it down on my phone so I can figure out which ones I want to read off the iPad. Relatively quickly, anyways. Okay, so they did the findings kind of strange because they didn't do a probable cause. So... They did the findings in three separate sections. The first one being findings as to causes and contributing factors. What? Exactly. Because also most of this just retold the story over again. So I don't do that. And I'm also not doing all these findings because there's a lot of them <laughs> between the three sections. So we'll go through the first section and do some of these. They found that the crew conducted an approach and landing in the midst of a severe and rapidly changing thunderstorm. Yeah. There were no procedures within Air France related to distance required from thunderstorms during approaches and landing, nor were these required by regulations. This, in some regard, hasn't changed. In some regard, it has. Because weather radar is relatively improved, there's situations where it's like, okay, if it's above a certain level, don't go anywhere near it. But that's still... Here and there. They found that after the autopilot and autothrust systems were disengaged, the pilot flying increased the thrust in re reaction to a decrease in the airspeed and a perception that the aircraft was sinking. The power increase contributed to an increase in aircraft energy and the aircraft deviated from the glide path. At that moment that he applied power, it caused the airplane to go above the glide path. It was actually, if he hadn't have increased the power, they would have been more likely to stay on the glide path. He may have also just increased the power too much. Because when they crossed over the threshold, they were 40 feet above where they were supposed to be. They found that at about 300 feet above ground level, the surface wind began to shift from a headwind component to a 10-knot tailwind component, increasing the aircraft's ground speed and effectively changing the flight path. The aircraft crossed the runway threshold about 40 feet above the normal threshold crossing height. That... I mean, if you ask me, that's that's what caused the accident. There that it is. Touching down so far down the runway. Right. That's cause, but that's not causal factors. There's more to it. That's what happened. They found that when the aircraft was near the threshold, the crew members became committed to the landing and believed their go-around option no longer existed. We talked all about why that was. It's just silly. I mean, they, they I still think they should have gone around. I, I understand in that situation, though, it was hard to make that decision. Yeah, I understand why they didn't, but also they should have. Yes. They found that the touchdown was long because the aircraft floated due to its excess speed over the threshold and because the intense rain and lightning made visual contact with the runway very difficult. 
I do agree with part of that in that because they couldn't really see the runway, I mean, they had to have known that they were floating a distance. Yeah. But I don't they, think they quite understood how far they had gone. Because in most pilots' mind, if you know when you're flying a big heavy machine like that, like if you knew on a clear day that you were that far down the runway, you would have gone around. Yes. There was no question. They found that selection of the thrust reversers was delayed, as was the subsequent application of the full reverse thrust. By a lot. I mean, 16 seconds for full thrust reverse is a long time, especially when you're already 4,000 feet down the runway. Ooh. That one was just, that was just ugly. They did determine, though, that if they had used full thrust reverse, it wouldn't have kept them from running off their end of the runway. It just might not have been as bad. Okay, well, you answered one of the one-ifs. What-ifs, I asked Miranda not to ask. Yes, but that is here nor there. Again, wouldn't have kept the airplane from running off the runway. I don't know if it would have ended up in the ravines still. I don't think they did either. I don't think they knew. They found that the pilot not flying, or the pilot monitoring, or the captain, in this case, did not make the standard call-outs concerning the spoilers and thrust reversers during the landing roll. This further contributed to the delay in the pilot flying selecting the thrust reversers. I don't know if I necessarily agree with that being a factor. He could have called for it, yes. But also, I mean, it's on the first officer to do that action. And he's, like, trying to hold still. Right. Yeah. And again, they were both looking for it to line up on the center line. But I do agree he didn't make the spoilers call out. So it kind of showed that at that moment there was a lot of stress on them. I don't think they necessarily entirely blamed them for that. It's like, okay, this was a heavy workload at that moment. They found that because the runway was contaminated by water, the strength of the crosswind at touchdown exceeded the landing limits of the aircraft because of the water. On a clear day, it would have been right at that limit. They found that despite aviation routine weather reports, or METARs, Calling for thunderstorms at Toronto at the expected time of landing, the crew did not calculate the landing distance required for runway 24 left. This was their other big breakdown. They didn't calculate how much distance they needed, so when they were further down the runway when they touched down, they didn't know how much distance they were going to need to stop. This not is kind that of a. They even knew how much distance they had. Well, this is kind of a big issue because any. I'm not going to say any good pilot, but. In any situation where anything's changing, usually you have to calculate that stuff. And a lot of airplanes can do it for you these days, but you should still manually calculate as well to back up that information. So this is one of those big breakdowns to me. Where it's like, mm, they should have thought about that. They should have calculated. They found that the downpour diluted the firefighting foam agent and reduced its efficiency in dousing the fuel-fed fire, which eventually destroyed most of the aircraft. Now, okay, you, but like it wasn't going to be recoverable. No, 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 nope, nope. I think they were just hoping that it wouldn't burn people and stuff, but yeah. All right, now we move on to findings as to risk, section two of the findings. I'll do a handful of these. They found that a policy where only the captain can make the decision to conduct a missed approach is stupid, can increase the likelihood that an unsafe condition will not be recognized early and therefore increase the time it might otherwise take to initiate a missed approach. Complete BS is stupid. I will say that the first officer also never suggested it. Yeah, but no, like, but still, I get it that it's not his call, but he also could have suggested it. But that's your northern. It's still a stupid rule. Yes, it is. They found that during approaches in convective weather, crews may falsely rely on air traffic control to provide them with suggestions and directions as to whether to land or not. Weather to land? Oh. Yes. 
Boom. There it is. This is, I can get where this is an issue. I don't think that they ever proved that this was the crew doing that, that the crew was trying to get the air traffic control to tell them to land or not. Yeah. It's a little bit common sense. Not their decision. They're not in the airplane. They don't know what the conditions are right where you are. Yeah. It's not their call. But I can understand what they mean here. When there's severe weather, because I guess I should read the next one as well. Uh, Let's see here. That was five. They found that some pilots have the impression that the air traffic controller will close the airport if weather conditions make landings unsafe. Air traffic control has no such mandate. This is... Iffy. Yeah. An air traffic controller can sort of deny you landing, but an airplane technically is always allowed to land anyway. More than that, though, usually if the weather gets too bad, yes, conditions are considered too low for the aircraft to be able to land, and that's what closes the airport. I think a lot of pilots understand that, but some think that the air traffic control would tell them, hey, the airport's closed because the conditions look to be getting too bad. But not always. They often rely, because they don't have enough information, they often rely on aircraft to try to make the landing in the conditions to tell them how bad it is and if it's worth continuing. And that's what they did actually with the two aircraft prior to Air France 358. But then the conditions changed so quickly and significantly for 358 that it didn't matter. And I would also say that that's something that the accident crew was relying on was the fact that these two planes also just landed yes like how bad could it be how much could one it of them was a regional jet they were like we're bigger than that we can do this and it just happened like how much could things change in that amount of time turns out a lot, a lot. they found that there were there are no clear visual cues to indicate that some dual lane slides actually have two lanes as a result these slides were used mostly as single lane slides These likely slowed the evacuation, but this fact was not seen as a contributing factor to the injuries suffered by the passengers. This was kind of what I was talking about. Like, the doors wide enough, the slides were wide enough that they could bring their bags through with them. So they did. But also, they were technically wide enough to evacuate two lanes of people at the same time, coming from both directions down the aisles, basically, is the idea. That's why, like, on wide-body aircraft, they actually don't need many more doors than on narrow-body That kind of makes sense. Because the doors are so much bigger, they can literally send two people through at once. That's not a big deal. Yeah. But what they're saying here is that the slides didn't have any indication that you could send two people down at once. Like there was no divider or any kind of line or indication on the slide that said like one here, one there. And nobody was guiding them to do that either. So they didn't. (laughs) They went down one person at a time. So note to all of our... uh... Listeners and us, check. Can you fit two people at once? If so, do it. Yeah, most white bodies. They found that although all passengers managed to evacuate, the evacuation was impeded because nearly 50% of the passengers retrieved carry-on baggage. We won't even get into that again. Mm Mm-hmm. Already covered that. And now for the other findings. (laughs) That is the section. We found that it could not be determined why door L2 opened before the aircraft came to a stop. That random little door that decided to open some way or another. Ultimately didn't contribute, just like they said. They found that there is no indication that the aircraft was struck by lightning. But again, 
How would you know? Yeah. <laughs> the airplane was burnt to a crisp. So y'all admit Nick's dad. He has told us that the only evidence that lightning has s- struck a plane is that there's a hole. Like, just big enough to fit a pencil through it. Yeah, it's just like the diameter of a pencil. That's usually what happens when an airplane gets struck by lightning. It's Good. usually dead center on the nose, too. Good luck finding that on um a burnt airplane. That. Mm-hmm. It happens... Not, I mean, it happens regularly. Most of the time, it doesn't even lead to damage, depending on how bad the lightning strike is. But in this case, they probably got struck by a lightning multiple times. There's just no evidence of that because, yeah, the airplane's burnt to a crisp. They will never know. The world may never know. That's right. They found that there is no information to indicate that the aircraft encountered wind shear during its approach and landing. So No, but there's no evidence to indicate it didn't. Right. I would say that they necessarily didn't, but the shifting winds did not help their case. I don't know that it was necessarily wind shear that they encountered, but having that change of wind where it's coming from a different direction than they were anticipating did not help them. And also it was higher winds than they were set up to deal with. Finally, they found that the flight crew seats are certified to a lower standard than the cabin seats which may have been a factor in the injuries incurred by the captain. His seat detached from the airplane. Yeah, that's not great. That, to me, is insanity. He's in the cockpit. Normally, those seats are always, like, big, chunky, nice, and you would think that that means that they're way safer, but apparently not. I think that has since changed, though I didn't see it anywhere in here. So, like we said, there's no probable cause. So now we're just going to move directly into what is called safety actions. And I also say recommendations since they don't have a section devoted to that. But they do have recommendations in here. (laughs) Something that did change following the accident, Air France amended the policy that states that only the captain can call for a missed approach. Thank Thank you. Either pilot can now make that call. (laughs) As it should. Because it's been the way for decades. Yep, 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 yep. Things that have also changed after the accident, Transport Canada publicly stated that it will soon require all airports to build, quote, safety areas, end quote, at the ends of runways. However, this is one of those things that, again, they didn't change here. And my guess is because that's not retroactive, but anything new that's being built. So they're probably... When was the last time a new airport was built in Canada? Right. Well, there's that. But also the thing is, I'm guessing if they rebuilt this runway, decided to literally rebuild the whole thing that they would probably be forced to do that. And I'm guessing they just haven't done that yet. So another thing that I I don't know if it, if you're bringing it up, but after the 1978 crash of the Air Canada DC-9, they asked that the gully be filled in. Yeah. That's uh, not cheap. No, it's not. It also requires them diverting a creek. So they haven't done that. Right. Still. Right. Just to be clear. Yep. Nope. They have not. And I don't... I mean, someday they might, but... Uh, not today. Not today. So there was a really long uh, bit here that they went into. This is where we get into the recommendations. A really long bit they went into about how the pilots didn't kind of understand and have a line where it's like, this is too severe of a storm to be flying in. Yeah. So the recommendation... The board recommends that the Department of Transport establish clear standards limiting approaches and landings in convective weather for all air transport operators at Canadian airports. This also was recommended to France's Direction General de l'Aviation Civile. 
and other civil aviation authorities. The FAA. The EASA. The CAA. And so on and so forth. Et cetera, et cetera. Et cetera, et cetera, and, and so, so forth. forth. So that's the case. They recommended that in some cases this has been implemented where they say, okay, the weather's just too conductive. It's too... Unpredictable. Unpredictable. Don't do it. Don't land. Don't go into it. Do not Never recommend. Uh, let's see here. Two more. Word also recommends that the Department of Transport and other civil aviation authorities require crews to establish the margin of error between landing distance available and landing distance required before conducting an approach into deteriorating weather. So, literally doing that calculation that they didn't do, it turns out they weren't required to do it either. It's good practice, but they weren't required to do it. Now they're saying... They should be required to do it. They should be required to do that calculation to make sure that they know how much distance they need to land in the weather conditions versus what they have available at the runway at the airport. Is that required now? It is. Most airlines required that even before this, but now, yes. And finally, the board recommends that the Department of Transport required that passenger safety briefings include clear direction to leave all carry-on baggage behind during evacuation. Yeah, that happened. Yes. People still do it, though. Oh, yeah, they do. But you'll hear that it's in every safety briefing now, pretty much everywhere on Earth. Also, I feel like I don't this is probably not a thing. I don't know. I haven't taken a long flight. But if you're having a flight in excess of a certain number of hours, maybe there should be like a pre-landing briefing. They do not do that. Can we? I don't think they will. Why not? They consider it enough at the beginning. You have the safety card for reference the rest of the time. Yeah, but, yeah, but we know how. at them. Yep. And that's their problem, right? No. <laughs> that's also your problem if you're also trying to get off the damn aircraft. Unfortunately, yes. Listen, if I'm ever on an aircraft that we have to evacuate and I see someone grabbing their baggage, I'm going to be like, put your bags back in the overhead bin. Who do you think I wouldn't you even do that. I just hit it out of their hand into the seat and push them forward. We're going. Sorry. Oh, that's, that's one of the things that they talked about for the L2 door was part of the reason that they didn't close it, despite the smoke that was just, you know, pouring in. Uh-huh. Yep. Was that not only were people willingly jumping, they were just getting pushed out. Yeah, that is a thing, too. Because that's also human nature. Yeah, I want to get the I want to get the hell out of here. Shove. Shove. Yep. Yeah, that's also a thing. Yeah. Well, and the other thing is, too, is when an accident actually happens, you have that crew, and they are there to help you. No one listens! Evacuate. I agree. But that's their job. So everybody else's job is to listen. But no one listens. Right. Remember, three things you can do as a passenger. One, buckle your seatbelt. Two, read Read the safety information card. Read the safety card. And three, get off the airplane. So that's it. Okay, then. Yay, Air France, giving us nice, long episodes. Always. Always. <laughs> You're welcome, because it's been relatively short the past couple of weeks, so. That was Air France flight, I don't even remember. 358. 358. <laughs> <laughs> I would be so lost without you guys. <laughs> it's okay, I'd be lost without you, too. Thank you for listening. Remember to check out the Patreon. Um, and if you have any other ideas on stuff we can include on that, please let us know. Uh, make sure you submit your stories. Um, sooner rather than later. Cough, cough, please, God. That would be great. 
Uh, especially for May, I know that this comes out before May, but because we are leaving at the end of May, we are, are panicking, <laughs> <laughs> making sure everything is done before we leave. Okay, so please, if you're going to submit a story for May, I know we haven't had the topic, please submit it as soon as possible so we can get that done, recorded, and edited, and out for you before we leave. Yeah. Our okay. deadline, we are recording the May listener stories on Monday, May 23rd. It is happening that day. With or without you. Like, because we're, we're gone. At and, the end of that week. And then nothing is happening for literally a month. So. so please, please, please. That also means we will not have stories for June because we're kind of not here. And well, we're I mean, just going to be busy. I mean, so, we, we'll be back. Yeah, yeah but it, we'll see. We'll see. I mean... We'll 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 uh, check in with you at the end of May. <laughs> we are literally taking a three week vacation. It is as far as I am concerned, well deserved. So yep, just be aware that potentially June will not have listener. Help stories. us help us not be stressed on our vacation, please, please and thank you. Thank you. That has been our PSA for today's episode. No, there have been several of those. That's not the only There's one. There's a lot of them, but this one is the one that pertains to please get everything in early. Thanks. We do appreciate, by the way, we do appreciate when you guys do send us stories. We really like reading them. We enjoy their Your entertaining. Your stories are fantastic. Thank you, David. And, and everybody else. <laughs> everybody else has really good stories, too. I've actually really liked everybody's stories. And we've gotten a lot more from other people, actually. And there's a lot of stories that are not aviation-related that we are very enthusiastic about. Uh, Vanessa, your drowning stories, I have she did submit. <laughs> she did submit part of her saga. Oh, she, boy. Well, you have to listen to that soon. Part of that was, like, my drowning saga. I was like, thank you for filling us in. We appreciate it. That was, like, the th my third drowning story. I'm like, what happened Wait a minute. <laughs> what? Third? <laughs> anyway. Again, thank you so much for listening. We appreciate everyone who listens. If you do like the show, please rate it on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or whatever. It helps other people see us and potentially other people can enjoy listening to Even us. Even just subscribe because that also That also helps. Or forces follow, it. follow what, the show, whatever. All of the things that you subscribe to, they like look at that data and they're like, "Cool. Well, these people also subscribe to that." So you must also like this. Yes. And that gets suggested to other people. So, I mean, if you do like the the show and you do enjoy listening to us, please, we appreciate that. And we... Also, word of mouth is a thing. Yes. So, anyway, thank you so much for listening. We hope you have a safe and healthy week, and we will catch you all next week. Keep your speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at heartlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.